Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and top instructors share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, TaylorMade Golf, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Two Under, Ben Hogan Golf, Golf Pride, Srixon and their Z-Star Golf Balls, and the Sandiston Resort. Now here is your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to this week's edition of Next on the Tee. I am your host, Chris Mascaro, and I can't thank you enough for tuning in and joining me again this week. And boy, do we have a great show lined up for you tonight. When I tell you I've been like a kid waiting for Christmas morning, anticipating tonight's show, I promise you it's no exaggeration. Woke up this morning, looked at the clock, 3.17 a.m. Couldn't get back to sleep because I was so excited about the show tonight. I mean, when you get to talk to Ben Wright, Paul Stankowski, and Gary Player, how do you sleep? Right? How do you not be excited and anticipation of a show when you have those three guests tonight? And I'm telling you, folks, Ben Wright is perhaps the greatest broadcaster. And you know, from, from a golf perspective, no one ever better in my mind. And the anticipation of getting to talk to him again tonight, 16 times, folks, that Mr. Wright has, uh, has uh, been, been so gracious to come on the show. So that'll be number 16. He is somebody very, very special to me. I'm blessed every single time I get to have any, really any of my guests on this show. Look, I'm under no pretense that uh, there's anybody that's the star of the show. It's not me. It's all the guests. I get that. I'm very blessed every single time someone wants to come on the show. They've all made it, you know, whatever you want to categorize the show as, they've made the show what it is. But one surreal thing for me is that Mr. Wright knows who I am. I mean, the fact that he answers the phone, hello, Chris, still blows me away to this day. He's a broadcasting icon. He's a treasure to me. I'm very much looking forward to having him back on the show. He's going to join me in just a few minutes. After him, Paul Stankowski, who has been a wonderful friend of the show for the last five and a half years. He's going to be back with me. He was, you go all the way back to the beginning season, our very first season back in 2014. Paul was guest number seven on this show, and that was back in June of 2014. He shared so many stories and insights over the years. I'm sure tonight's going to be no different. We're going to talk about his playing career, including if he was ever intimidated when he got paired with a legend like Gary Player or a Jack Nicklaus or an Arnold Palmer. Plus, I want to get his insights on the tour's wraparound season. We've got the upcoming President's Cup a little bit later on this year. I want to get his thoughts on that as well. So very much looking forward to having Paul back with me. He'll join me about 30 minutes from now. And then Gary Player. For a fifth consecutive year, Mr. Player has come back and, and uh, going to be a part of the show. I remember the very first time Mr. Player said he would come on the show. I was so worried that, you know, I mean, I was, I'm a, obviously I'm nobody. And then I was worried that, you know, he would have something more important come up. Or when I called, he, he wouldn't answer the phone because he had other things going on. And then when I dialed his number, I started to worry that, you know, I was first worried that he wouldn't answer the phone. And then when the phone started to ring, I was afraid he actually would. And then we'd have to go on. And, uh, but you know what? He has been absolutely wonderful. So kind, so generous with his time. A huge thrill talking to him over the last several years. And uh, I got to talk to him yesterday morning and another huge thrill getting to spend about a half an hour with him. I'm going to play that interview for you a little bit later on in the hour. 
So there you have it, folks. More great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Teen. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. You know, I always like to kick off the show reminding you about the Lawrence Brothers, Mitch and Matthew, and how much they mean to me and how great their golf shows are. Please make sure to tell all your friends and continue to support both of them. Mitch's show is called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it online at GolfTripX.com, and that's the letter X, so GolfTripX.com. It's also available on Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Mitch and his co-host, Darren Bunch, they take you all around our country here in the U.S., go across the border to Canada, let you know about some of the great places to go stay and play. They also let you know about some of the hidden gem courses you may not be aware of. Mackinac Island up in Michigan was one of their great episodes, and I checked it out online. And Boy, that place looks absolutely spectacular. I'm dying to get up there. Check out their show again. It's called Talking Golf Getaways and available on GolfTripX.com. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It airs every Sunday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time on WLXG ESPN Radio AM 1300 up in Lexington, Kentucky. You can stream it online by going to WLXG.com or do what I did, which is download the WLXG app and listen right there on your smartphone. Matthew always makes the show so much fun, plus so much great golfing content on his show. First segment every week is with his partner, Perry French from Strixon Cleveland Golf, Zexio Golf, some of the best week in and week out golf instruction and tips that you're going to find anywhere. Again, the show is called Backspin Golf, and you can find it on WLXG.com or on the WLXG app. And folks, as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from Steve Rondonero about what's going on up there. It's a Pete Dye masterpiece, the Pete Dye course at French Lick Resort. Pete says its location on one of the highest points in Indiana makes it special. The long views, you can see many 20 and 30 miles from many of the fairways and many of the tees and greens, and, and you can see it in 360 degrees. Donald Ross's hill course put French Lick on the golf map more than 100 years ago. It's where Walter Hagen won the 1924 PGA Championship and the place where today's Symmetra Tour ladies battle each year. It's the ambience around it that makes the golf course. Combine our many resort amenities with legendary golf, and you have a getaway like no other. French Lick Resort is the home of the Senior LPGA Championship, won in 2018 by World Golf Hall of Famer Laura Davies. Play the course's champions play. Plan your trip now, online at FrenchLick.com. Yeah, folks, go online to FrenchLick.com to see what a wonderful place they have up there. The beautiful golf courses, the great hotels, and oh, by the way, a casino right there on the property as well. And well, folks, TaylorMade Golf has done it again. The TaylorMade M5 and M6 drivers are a tremendous story. Both feature speed-injected twist face, created through a revolutionary manufacturing process where every single head, and you hear me talk about this all the time, yes, every single head is injected and calibrated to the threshold of the legal limit. So basically, every head is made to be tour spicy. So speed for all of us. Check it out online by going to tailormadegolf.com. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. They've got their new fall collection out. You're going to see Steve Stricker, Miguel Angel Jimenez, and Ernie Els wearing it out on the Champions Tour. Check out their style and all of the great styles on the Bobby Jones site by going to bobbyjones.com and enter coupon code on the T to save 20% at checkout. All right, folks, now back with me here on the French Lick Resort. Guest line is one of my all-time favorite guests, and that's Mr. Ben Wright. Always an honor to have him as part of the show, because quite frankly, in my mind, 
He is the best broadcaster in golf history. He made the tournaments that we all watch so much more compelling by the way he painted the scenes for us. Who can forget the outstanding job he did at the Masters every year? His phrase, that'll be evil music ringing in Nicholas's ear, right? From the 75 Masters, fantastic. And then Nicholas goes on to make that wonderful putt on 16. I'll always remember Ben Wright for his phrase, yes, sir, to, uh, to kind of exclamation point on uh, Nicholas's eagle putt on the 15th on the final round of the 86 Masters. Remember, folks, he did that, you know, uh, I think it was about 20 minutes earlier than Vern Lundquist used that same phrase when Nicholas made the birdie putt on 17. So he did it first. And uh, he's just an absolutely wonderful human being. He's been very kind and generous over the years. And I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Mr. Wright. Thank you for coming back on the show. You know, Chris, uh, I'm almost speechless. Uh, that is so nice of you to say all those wonderful things about an old man of 87 who, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm really amazed that people still want to hear what I've got to say. It's amazing. <laughs> That's because nobody has ever said it better or told better stories and uh, was right in the thick of things <laughs> than you, Mr. Wright. So that never gets old, I promise you. So, oh, thank you. Mr. Wright, I want to go back to those those pivotal moments uh, You know, when you were broadcasting the Masters Tournament and, and, and some of the you know those phrases that are going to live forever, right? Even... You know, 20, 30 years from now, when, when you know, people are looking back at Masters history and, and beyond that, I mean, those moments, those, those calls that you made in 75 and 86, and not, you know, for the 20, what, 23 years you did the Masters, your 27 years with CBS Sports, I mean, those things are going to yeah. live forever. Do you, do you ever think, of, think to yourself, you know, like uh, about the legacy that you're leaving behind because of the great things you did in broadcasting? Well, you know... Um, Chris, quite frankly, broadcasters are quickly forgotten. Um, you, you, you are much better remembered uh, in the print media, and I've done my share of that, of course. Uh, you know, I was the first ever correspondent on golf for the Financial Times of London, and I did a weekly column on golf, would you believe, for 24 years. And I did another 20 years for Lynx magazine. So, you know, the broadcasting is here today, gone tomorrow. But what you leave behind in print, they can't expunge. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Wright, when I, as I was saying, you know, about your call in, in, in 75, you know, on the 15th hole when Watts, Weisskopf, uh, you know, birdied that hole to take a one-stroke lead in, in your phrase, that'll be yes. evil music ringing in Nicholas's ears and, and things like that. Come right off the top of your head, uh, those things that you think about in advance, how do, how do you come up with great quips like that right in the spur of the moment? To be honest, Chris, Straight off the top of my head. Well, uh, you know, when I was making a movie, Tin Cup, they wouldn't believe that I never took anything up to the tower but a pairing sheet. And um, I said, oh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to do your 
homework beforehand, and then when you go on the air, you've got to be speaking from the the heart, not the head. And um, I must say they couldn't uh, understand that. And um, Ron Shelton, the director of Tin Cup, uh, when I tore up the script, because he had me using a load of words of four and five syllables, which he thought were very English, but I hadn't heard of them, uh, I, I told him, it's all ad lib, Mr. Shelton. And um, <clears throat> some of the guys, including uh, the star of the show, uh, came up and they were underneath my desk when I was ad-libbing my way through Tin Cup. So, you know, it, it's, not, it's not bull. I, I really believe that spontaneity is the art of broadcasting. You know, if you don't talk from the heart uh, at, and, and are totally facing the situation as it arises, if you're fumbling for your notes, then you're no damn good. <laughs> and- and Mr. Wright, thinking about that 75 Masters after you make the call with Wisecoff, are you spinning around yes. in your chair and seeing uh, seeing Nicholas make the putt right on top of that? And what's your reaction when uh, when all of that unfolded? Well, I thought to myself, you know, Nicholas is unique in my experience. He is capable of summoning a master stroke, apparently with ease, when he most needs it. And of course he most needed it at that time. And uh, I've always regarded Jack Nicklaus as the greatest winning golfer of all time. Now, maybe not the best swinger of the club or the most beautiful or nowhere near as gorgeous a swing as uh, Tiger Woods, for instance. But he had this incredible mental facility that I don't believe has ever been uh, equaled except perhaps by Mr. Ben Hogan. But of course, Ben had to serve in the Second World War. Probably his best years they could have been. But um, those two, to me, are the two greatest golfers of all time. And I put Woods third uh, because I, I have such an admiration of their ability to summon greatness when it was most required. Speaking of Ben Hogan, and I know what an affinity you have for, for Mr. Hogan, a guy who won nine majors, but the thing that you just pointed out, and, and, and Gary Player pointed this out when he and I were talking yesterday, but a guy who lost, what, how many, how many majors could, 
could he have played in not, uh, 30 majors did, you know, because yeah. of the, the World War? I mean, how many majors yes. could Ben Hogan have won if it wasn't for World War II? Oh, gosh. He might have uh, I would say, probably no less than 20, Chris. I, I, think he, I think he would have won 20 majors, personally. And uh, Mr. Ray, you talk about Mr. Nicholas's, you know, how how strong mentally he was. The opposite side of that coin might have unfortunately been Tom Weiskopf. As, as we talk about that 75 Masters, and when Nicholas makes that putt on 16, how much did that take the wind out of Tom Weiskopf's career? Well, oh, absolutely destroyed him. You know, Tommy was a great friend of mine and a colleague, a broadcasting colleague at CBS. And it was one of the great tragedies of the game that he always played in Jack Nicklaus's shadow because they were both from the same town, Columbus, Ohio. And um, contrary to what was thought, most of the time they were good friends. Weisskopf actually uh, couldn't stand Nicholas because Nicholas absolutely had the Indian sign on him. And I'll never forget when Weisskopf won a playoff in Royal Montreal for the Canadian Open head-to-head against Nicholas in a two-man playoff and uh, Weisskopf one with a birdie at the first playoff hole. I can't forget, never will, how crazy Weisskopf went because he'd finally beaten the evil foe. And, um, <laughs> uh, I did. you know, I, it was a tragedy because Weisskopf's swing, in my opinion, was the purest golf swing I ever saw. Bar none. And Mr. Wright, when I was kind of doing some research on you and, and your history there at Augusta National, I believe it was 1965, the first time you went to cover the Masters. Do you remember what it was like the first time you, you got to uh, be in the in the car driving up Magnolia Lane to cover the event? Oh, it was another world. Uh, it, was, it, it was so strange to come out of Washington Road with all those fast food and cheap clothing, knockoffs of master stuff and all that rubbish. And you went in through the gates and there was this incredibly peaceful and beautiful, utterly beautiful place. You know, in all the years I spent there, and it was a lot more than 27 because... um, uh, I did a bunch for the British networks and, uh, and of course, the Financial Times. And, um, you know, quite frankly, uh, that is the, the most beautiful place I, I've ever been in a golfing sense. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm getting, the hair is standing out on my forearms. In the back of my neck, just talking of 
about Augusta National because it was such an extraordinary experience and something that I'm eternally grateful for to having been involved in that event. And if you think back over that history, I believe you went through at least four chairmen of Augusta National, you know, Mr. Roberts through 1976, Clifford Roberts. He was followed by Bill Lane for a couple of years and Horde Harden through the 80s and then Jack Stevens in the 90s. What do you remember about, uh, you know, dealing and being around those gentlemen? Well, those gentlemen were all very kind to me. Um, first of all, Mr. Roberts had me moved from 14 to 15, where I spent the rest of my career at Augusta National, because he said the young English boy, uh, I was close to 40, um, should be moved to a, a more prominent place after my debut at 14. And um, Horde Hardin was wonderfully kind to me I mean, we went there every year when he was chairman and played golf on Augusta National for three days. And Frank Chikian, my late esteemed boss, and the late Pat Summerall and I would play skins on the nine-hole par three in the afternoon after we played the big course in the morning. And then, you know... Each meal of the day was in a different restaurant in Augusta National. I mean, and I slept in Eisenhower's bedroom, President Eisenhower's bedroom. Wow. And I mean, you know, talk about a lucky, lucky fella. Good God. I mean, <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm one of the luckiest men alive to be able to say that. And of course, Jack Stevens was phenomenal. Uh, he was obviously very uh, responsible in getting Pat Summerall a football scholarship at the University of Arkansas. And um, he and Pat and I uh, were, were pretty good drinking buddies, I might add. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Ray, one of one of the guys I would have loved to have found a, a, an interview, and I'm sure you did many of them, um, was with Lee Trevino. He obviously a guy who talked a lot. He has a fascinating story about his life and how he got to the PGA Tour. Very funny man. But I've also heard that he was that way when the red light came on, but maybe not so much when it wasn't. What was your experience working with and talking with Lee Trevino? I loved Lee Trevino. I mean, he was what the tour needed at the time, a breath of fresh air who'd come up from the very uh, lowest of the low. And uh, oh, I, I have nothing but admiration for Mr. Trevino, not only for his incredible ability, but he, his fantastic showmanship uh, when he was on the golf course, entertaining thousands and thousands of people. 
Uh, I have nothing bad to say about Lee Trevino. He was one of the game's greatest characters in my time. And he was a great ball striker, too. It, it always confused me or confounded me about why he didn't play at Augusta National very often. And when he did, he didn't play all that well. Was it more about sort of the off-the-course stuff that was going on with Augusta National at the time? Or what did you think? Why, why did he never win a Masters? Well, he, you know, he, uh, he had a social thing about it. He, he was from the caddy shack, as it were, and he could never get comfortable at Augusta. Uh, and uh, I, I know that to be a fact, because he told me so. And, of course, he'd change his shoes in the parking lot and stuff like that. Um, he was never comfortable there because of the social aspects of the thing. He felt he was out of his class. He was with the upper crust. And he felt he was the lower crust. And uh, he was never comfortable. Never. Mr. Ray, when you when you were covering, you know, whether it was a major or just a, a regular golf tournament, did you ever watch somebody set up over a shot and, and think to yourself, I cannot believe he's about to try that shot? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think Jack Nicklaus would be the case in point at the 1972 Open at Pebble Beach. Uh, I was standing with a great British golf rider, Pat Ward Thomas on the 17th tee and the wind was blowing heavens hard off the Pacific in Nicholas's face and the par three was playing uh, round about I think probably 235 at the time and um, he brought out an iron and I remember Pat Ward Thomas saying You'll never get there with that. And, of course, Nicholas hit this historic shot that, that smacked against the flagstick and left him with a six-inch tapping. And I'll never forget because as he walked off the tee, he didn't say anything to Pat Ward Thomas, but he had definitely heard what Pat said. And he just winked at Pat. And uh, that was, I, I think, probably I didn't think he could get there with an arm either. But shot on 15 in the final round of the 86 Masters might have been the worst shot he ever hit, at least in, in tournament play, certainly in probably major tournament play. Did he ever tell you what happened in that moment? Yes. Um, of course, he got very angry with me because I called it a quite dreadful shot. I also said that that ball is destined for the water. And um, next morning, uh, said he was really, really angry with me. And we didn't talk from uh, the Monday after that Masters until February at Pebble Beach 
when he tapped on my shoulder when I was having lunch and said, with his hand outstretched and that magnificent smile, it was a quite dreadful shot. And I'll never <laughs> forget that as long as I live. Uh, yeah, I have a huge admiration for him. But he said, I said to him, I know why you missed that shot. And he said, well, tell me why you think I missed that shot. And I said, because you were scared half to death because of the incredible ovations that were greeting Jack Nicholas's feet all over the golf course. And he said, Ben, you're damn right. And wow. There we are. And uh, that, I think that explains everything, really. Yeah. Mr. Wright, I had the privilege of talking to Gary Player yesterday, and I'm going to be playing that interview a little bit later on in the show. He asked me to pass along his very best to you. And, and as you put it, when we were talking the other night, you've known Mr. Player since he was practically a boy. Talk about what it was yeah. like watching him grow into being one of the all-time great players it's sort of as you sort of watched him grow up. Yes. You know something? Uh, I'm so glad you asked me, Chris, because in 1955, he missed his 13th straight cut in his first year uh, playing on the, on the British tour at that time at uh, Hoylake, a Royal Liverpool Golf Club. And we're walking to the railroad station in the rain. And we were with a, uh, a, a very big fella, uh, a British club pro, who'd also missed the cut. And um, little Gary uh, turned his big brown eyes up to Hugh Lewis. And he said, Huey, if I don't improve my sponsor, Mr. George Bloomberg, is going to call me home. How can I improve quickly to save myself? And Hugh Lewis, who was a North Country uh, man, said, Gary, get yourself a one-way ticket on a banana boat to Cape Town Go back to where you've come from and get yourself an honest job and forget about golf. And Gary burst into tears. This is absolutely true. And I mean, the tears were streaming down his face. But a year later, he won for the first time on the British tour the Dunlop Tournament at Wentworth, England, which was a 90-hole event. Um, and uh, Gary won it. And, of course, he was quickly away to America to fame and fortune. But that's uh, wow. a hell of a story, I think. But uh, even yeah. better, recently, uh, when I say recently, 10 years ago, yeah, that's recent to me, Chris. Um, <laughs> uh, Gary had to have his 
Invitational Tournament at my golf course, Cliffs Valley, because his golf course, the Cliffs Mountain Park, had been held up because of our environmental concerns. And uh, so Gary played, at the age of 70, he played the par three with all 32 groups of four amateurs in the tournament. And, you know, he made 26 birdies and a hole in one out of 32 shots at the age of 70. (laughs) Amazing. Mr. Ray, before I let you go, you talked about you talk about Cliffs Valley. Remind everybody about that course that you've got there in Travelers Rest, South Carolina, plus the the Ben Wright Invitational that's up in uh, Crystal Mountain in Michigan. Yes, uh, we we had it again this year, and it was great fun. Um, but I, you know, I'm getting to the age now where, of course, I can't play anymore because I broke my back. And um, I've got rods in there and screws and or whatever, more metal than me. Uh, and um, quite frankly, I'm coming to the end of the road. I feel like I'm playing the 17th and I'm one down. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if anyone's going to come back from one down through 17, my money's on you. <laughs> Excuse me, Chris. I'm making myself cough. Hear <laughs> me? <laughs> my apologies. Uh, no worries. Uh, but you know something? No regrets, Chris. I've had a wonderful life. Any man who doesn't appreciate the life uh, that I've enjoyed through golf would be very churlish indeed. And I have never taken anything for granted. I've been one of the luckiest men that ever walked this earth. Well, I tell you what, I, I feel extremely lucky to, uh, to have you as part of the show tonight, to have you as part of the show as often as you've been every single time. It's a huge thrill. I get excited throughout the day knowing that I'm going to have an opportunity to spend some more time with you. And I can't thank you enough for being generous, not only tonight, but every time you've been on this show. Uh, I mean it very sincerely. You are a huge treasure to the game of golf and to certainly to me personally. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I feel the same way about you, young man. I appreciate that very much. Mr. Wright, take care. I am already looking forward to the next time. In between now and then, all the best to you and to your family. Thank you very much. Same to you, Chris, and to all your listeners. Just go play. (laughs) Indeed. Take care, Mr. Wright. We'll catch up soon. Okay, mate. Bye-bye. See you, Mr. Wright. That's a great Ben Wright, folks. Boy, it just doesn't get any better than that. And, um, you know, I have so many questions that I still have to ask him about his experiences and, and in the game and around the game and, 
and certainly covering the Masters for all the years that he did in those uh, those calls. He he's right. You know, print is is fantastic, and those things are going to live forever, just like his book. Um, but uh, with uh, with YouTube and everything that we have at our disposal now, all of those videos and all of those calls are going to live just as long. All right, I've got my next guest, Paul Stankowski, hanging on the line. I'm going to get to Paul right on the other side of this real quick message from our good friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back in making his 10th appearance with me here on the French Lick Resort guest line is another guy who's meant a great deal to me ever since the show got started all the way back in 2014, and that's Paul Stankowski. To tell you what a wonderful friend Paul is, he was kind enough to join me all the way back on June the 1st of 2014. It was only episode number seven of this show. So he agreed to come on a show that he never heard of with a guy he never heard of. And he's been a wonderful friend over the last five and a half years. I always look forward to the opportunity to talk to him. And let me remind you guys all a little bit about Paul's background. He's from Oxnard, California, started playing golf at the age of eight. He attended the University of Texas, El Paso, and was a three-time All-American. He won the Western Athletic Conference Championship in 1990, turned pro in 91. His first pro victory came at the 96 Nike Louisiana Open. Backed that up the very next week on the PGA Tour by winning the Bell South Classic, becoming the only golfer at the time to win what is now the, you know, the Corn Ferry Tour, but went on that tour and then went on the PGA Tour in back-to-back weeks. In all, Paul has seven professional victories, 31 top 10 finishes, and I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Um, I, it's hard to believe. I've, I've been on the show 10 times. Yeah, tonight's 10. Can you believe that? <laughs> that's, that's crazy. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I enjoyed the last 15 minutes listening to Ben Wright. Uh, I haven't heard his voice, uh, well, for many, many years. And, and uh, I, was, I, I wish you had done the entire show um, all two hours with Ben Wright. I mean, I'm sure you could have gotten <laughs> two hours, probably four hours worth of coverage uh, with him. That was uh, that was very cool to, to hear that. And I know he's he's got to be in his mid 80s by now. And and uh, 87. That mind is 87. Wow, that mind is full of amazing stories. Yes, it is. So, Paul, and I've got Gary Player coming up next. I'm going to play a conversation that I got to have with him yesterday morning. And, and I wanted to get your memories. I mean, you've, you've played with so many of the great legends and Mr. Player, Mr. Palmer, Mr. Nicholas. Talk about some of the times that, that you got to play with them. And, and was it ever hard to draw it back on the first tee when, when those guys were in the, the twosome or foursome you were about to play with? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I, I, I had the pleasure of playing with Gary Player uh, on two occasions. Um, one was in a practice round at the Masters. Um, so it was just a casual, it might have been to, a Tuesday. Uh, it was me and, and uh, an amateur named Tim Hogarth, who was from Southern California, um, and, and Gary Player. And that, and that was a treat to, to stroll around Augusta uh, with a legend. Um, but the, the one that trumps it all um, was, it was either the 96 or 97 um, Memorial Tournament at Jack's Place at Muirfield Village. And I was slated to play in the, in the 
charity pro-am or not pro-am but the charity skins game and there were two groups and i was flying in that morning from dallas and and my flight was delayed getting into uh columbus and so i, I didn't have any idea who i was playing with but when i landed um I got the baggage claim and, and the volunteer was there for me. And they said, okay, as soon as you get your stuff, we've got to go. You're, you know, obviously uh, you're late. There's two groups and I think they're going to put you in the second group um, because you're, you're running a little behind. I said, okay, that's fine. So we hurry and get my clubs. We hurry to the golf course and um, I walk into the, to the locker room. I run in there to, to grab uh, a dozen balls out of my locker. And, and as I'm leaving the locker room, heading toward the putting green, um, I looked and, and the pairing sheet was up for the week. It had just been posted. And, and I noticed that I was playing with Tiger uh, that week, starting Thursday. So I was pretty excited. So I run out to the putting green and I'm putting my shoes on and trying to get, you know, all my equipment set up. And, and my caddy rich says, uh, Hey, do you see who you were playing with? And I said, yeah, we got Tiger this week. And, and he goes, no, no today. And I said, no, and I'm tying my shoes. And he goes, look around. And so I look up, from my shoe and I, and I look on the putting green and there's three guys on the putting green around me putting. And one was Gary player. One was Tom Watson and one was Jack Nicholas. <laughs> and, and, uh, and there was me. Um, now I was supposed to be in the group with like Duvall and who knows layman and somebody else. But um, since I was late, they went off in front and I got paired with three legends and, and played nine hole skins game at Muirfield village in front of, who knows, 10 or 15,000 people. Um, and talk about being nervous to pull the trigger. Yes, every single shot for nine holes, I was nervous. <laughs> um, and, uh, oh, my gosh, I had an eagle putt on a par five early to, to win so far because all the skins were carryovers to win all the skins at that point. It was a three-footer. I hit a three-wood in there to three feet. And as I'm over this putt, literally, I see my feet, the ball, I can see the hole. It's three feet away, and I see three sets of golf shoes. They're all standing right <laughs> within a foot of me, and they're just heckling me. This is Nicholas Watson. To wow. Play. Come on, kid. Don't miss it. Everyone's watching, and, and uh, it was incredible, and I made it. We had, we had a blast, but that day, you know, of all the days I've had uh, playing professional golf and all the, uh, the, the fun pairings uh, with, with a lot of just great players – there was nothing like that day there, nine holes with those three guys. And, and in fact, this year I went to the Masters with some friends and we went to the par three uh, course uh, Wednesday, the par three tournament, and, and sat behind the ninth green. And I watched those three guys come in and finish on nine. And, I'm, and it's just, you know, it's still, it, it, when I think back, Chris, it, it, it seems like it was a dream. Um, you know, because it was something I always dreamed of playing professional golf at the highest level on the PJ Tour and and I got to do it for 20 plus years. And um, looking back on a lot of the memories, though, it, it feels like it was a dream. And, uh, and that uh, was definitely a dream, a dream uh, two hours. Paul, as you talk about the opportunity to play with those three guys and then getting paired with Tiger, and I'm sure that wasn't the only time you got paired with Tiger. Was that excitement when you, when you got uh, the opportunity to play with those guys? Was it intimidating play with those guys? How was your game when you had an opportunity to walk side by side with one of them? Well, you know, you know that particular week, uh, you know, the reason I was actually even in the Skins game was because I had been playing some pretty decent golf. So, uh, you, know, the, you know, Jack and the tournament directors uh, thought I was, I was worthy of, of being one of the eight guys in the Skins game. But, you know, I wasn't supposed to be in the marquee group. I was supposed to be in the other group. So, 
but you know, it was, I was always nervous, you know, I, I, I always had a belief in my ability to, to perform. Um, but there wasn't a tournament that I teed it up in on the PGA tour that I didn't start off with nerve butterflies in my stomach and, you know, palms are a little sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy, you know, there's vomit on my sweaty already. No. Okay. I just took that's Eminem. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, sorry, I went there. Um, but you know, it was definitely, uh, intimidating, um, a little bit intimidating depending on the grouping. Um, but, but nervous nonetheless, because it was always an opportunity, uh, to, to perform. And, and, you know, even though it was, it was a dream, um, and, you know, playing professional golf was my job. Uh, I, th- I think it was one of the coolest jobs on earth. You know, I, I, I got to stroll fairways with some great players and have a chance at, at, uh, you know, trying to take a little money home and, and, uh, and maybe a trophy. I didn't win very many of those. Um, I think I played 400 tournaments and, and um, just won twice, but so lots of failure. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I'm human. So uh, I was nervous. Uh, I was probably more nervous, Chris, when I was playing well um, going into a tournament than I was when I was playing poorly. And maybe that was partly, um, you know, expectation um, you know, you're playing well, you expect to play well. And, and so what comes with playing well, well, being in contention and all that stuff. And that, you know, honestly, I, I was, um, I wasn't real comfortable being in uncomfortable situations. You know, I'm, it was a lot easier to, to play teeing off in the middle of the pack on Saturday than teeing off on the back of the pack, you know, near the lead, especially on Sunday. So, um, I don't care. A lot of, a lot of people, well, I'd say some people you talk to, um, say they lived for those moments and, you know, it, it, it juiced them up. And, and I'm like, okay, there are probably a lot of people that, that did live for those moments, but I guarantee you there are a lot of people that those moments were flat out. I mean, they turn your hair gray quicker, <laughs> make your hair fall out. They're nerve wracking. And, and, uh, you know, if they really admit it, I mean, it was, it was tough, uh, to be in those moments, but, um, but that's, I guess that's what, you know, being, uh, in contention is all about. You can't you can't win tournaments not being in contention, right? Right. But take that a step further, Paul. From from the mental side of the game, you know, you you won a couple of times on tour. You won seven times professionally. When you got in that moment, how did you quiet your mind down? How did you not let yourself, you know, think too far ahead or or you know, let the negative thoughts creep in there. You know, don't hit it here and keep your head. You know, how do you how do you quiet your mind and then go forward and actually pull off the win? Well, you know, one of the things that I learned early on um, was you can't think of two things clearly at the same time, right? You, you can't. Um, you, you can think of one thing more clearly than the other. You can see a couple things, but so I always tried to focus on what I needed to do versus what could happen, right? And I think most people, if you put some average 10 handicapper on the first tee lined with, you know, 20 deep of people down 120 yards off of the tee box, right, from from the tee all the way down, they're going to be afraid they're going to shank it and hit somebody in the head, okay? And that's probably the normal thought process to the average golfer. And But a tour player is not thinking of that. (laughs) They're thinking about... (laughs) <laughs> where they want the ball to go. And, and, and that's so, you know, focusing on where I wanted it to go, what I wanted to do. 
Uh, and that's, I use the yardage book, you know, the yardage book, which was a topic of, of discussion here the last couple of years and uh, the rule change of, you know, Green's books and all that kind of stuff. But to me, the yardage book was, was vitally important because it, it got my mind off of the peripheral. Um, and it really focused me in on what I wanted. So I'd get on the tee box and I'd pull the yardage book out and I'd start looking, okay, what do I have in front of me? You know, bunker on the right, that's 275, that's 300 to carry. Okay, I know I can get to that bunker and I can't carry it. Bunker on the left is 290 to it. Okay, I'm like, well, I can uh, get three wood, take it at the left side of the fairway, and no, I'm not going to get it in that left bunker. You know, so what I'm doing now is I'm processing the information ahead of me, trying to find, come up with a, a plan for that shot. And so in doing so, I'm no longer thinking about, who's watching, you know, where I'm at in, in the tournament, uh, all those things that you can't control that are distractions, you know, by getting into my book and processing what's ahead of me and where I want this ball to go, all of a sudden I'm focused on where I, where I want it to go and I'm no longer focused on the distraction. So that's how I tried to do it. Um, easier said than done. Very difficult at times walking down the fairway, you know, when you're down because now it's, no, it's not time to think about the next shot because I'm still 200 yards away from the golf ball. Um, and, you know, trying to reel the mind in when it starts drifting to the things that you can't control, right? The what if, uh, the, the hazards that are up around the green or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and I, and it's not, that's not just for golf. That's life too. I mean, every athlete, um, everybody who has a job that, that, that uh, demands some sort of precision, um, uh, or that demands execution. You, if you're thinking about other things, you're sidetracked, and you're never going to be as good as as you need to be. So, um, I, I say I, I use that yardage book um, one to get information, but also two to really focus me in on this shot and this shot only. So, there's two things I want to touch on that you just talked about. At, at what point in your career did the people all start to fade into the background where you could? go to your book and you could go through that routine where you didn't think because you're a hundred percent right. Any one of we amateurs that would be out there playing with, uh, with people lining, you know, down the fairway from the tee box or right behind us. Oh, by the way, we're thinking about all that stuff and please God, just let me get it off the tee. Just let me get this ball in the <laughs> air kind of thing. At, at what point did that all fade away? And that became just a part of the scenery, if you will. Well, you know, I, I think it was a process, and, and it was a process that, that um, it started for me in college. You know, in high school, I was learning. I was still learning my body. I was growing. I went from five foot four and a little bit more uh, in ninth grade to, to my current height, height just under six one in one season. Um, and wow. so I was still trying to figure out my, my body and, and my arms. All of a sudden, my arms are long, my legs are long, my levers, everything changed, and and that sophomore and junior year in high school, things were really funky. It, um, but as, as I started getting used to the body and, the, and, and I started hitting shots that shaped consistently uh, in the right direction, not every time, but, you know, I, I, once that started happening, then it's a lot easier to, um, to trust what your golf ball is going to do. And, um, and I actually, an injury in college my freshman year uh, where I was hitting golf balls, and somehow my left thumb, I, I still to this day have no idea how I did it, but I hit a shot fat and my left thumb popped on the club, and I had to wear a like a soft cast um, for a, uh, probably about 10 days, and I missed the tournament, 
And while my team was gone at, at whatever tournament it was, I, I tried to go out and hit balls, and but I couldn't get my left thumb on the club. And so I started hit. I turned my hand to the left, a weaker left-handed grip, and took my thumb off the club, and just started hitting shots without a left thumb on the golf club. And and so in order to do that, I started holding. Anyway, I I, I turned into a fader of the golf ball, and the ball faded all the time. And so I no longer had to think about well or fear: is this going to hook or is it going to cut? Um, I just teed up on the right side of the tee box, aimed up the left side of the fairway and hit it. And so as my shot shape began to be more consistent, then I no longer worried about my misses, right? I knew that my miss was typically going to be, I'd get a little bit quick and I'd hit a little heel flare. Um, So I wasn't worried about the people and and such because I'm like, okay, well, I know my shot is going to be a little left to right. All I got to do is aim it there and hit it. And and um, I was very, uh, I, I literally played by that, that old adage, keep it simple, stupid, right? Because um, that's it. I just was trying to be as simple as possible. I wasn't smart enough uh, to outthink a golf course anyway. So I just took my yardages and, and uh, hit my shot. Um, so I don't, I don't remember being fearful um, of people or that type of thing. Uh, I did hit one shot at Hartford one year. I remember it vividly. It was it was raining. It was cold. I had rain gear on, and the wind was whipping um, from behind, so from left to right uh, off the tee. And, and I'm on the 11th or the second tee shot. It's a little short par four at uh, TPC Cromwell, and I was hitting a three-wood off the tee. And as I got on my backswing, the wind gusted. It blew me forward. I hit a reverse shank. Um, so I thought the back of the hosel of my three wood and ricochet or shot straight into a chair that was literally 12 yards ahead and left of the tee box. Thankfully, the lady that was in the chair had just gotten out of the chair and it flew right into the back of the chair, like the, the, the back, just above the seat and, uh, didn't hit anybody. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I was I was always prone to at least one or two really good shanks a year. Um, so I knew they were coming, but I wasn't afraid of them. So talk about the other piece where now you've, whether it was your drive, your, you know, your second shot, whatever it was, and now you're walking in between those shots. What were you doing in between those shots? What were you talking about? Were you a talker? Did you like to, you know, talk about things completely off topic with your caddy? What was it like as you were walking to uh, to the next shot? Yeah, I, I was definitely a, a talker, and, and I didn't want to talk about anything uh, golf-related. You know, we talked about sports or fishing or, or whatever. Uh, it didn't matter. Food, what we're going to have for dinner that night. Uh, I might have that conversation 10 times in a day um, <laughs> about different what, what we're going to eat tonight. But, um, you know, it, it, when I hit a shank or a really crummy shot, I mean, it would take me probably 50 yards to stop laughing. Um, because it was one, it was embarrassing, and two, it was kind of comical. I mean, here I am at the top of my game. I can, I can name half of my shanks. I can, I, I shanked one at ten at Riviera, my second shot, trying to hit a flop shot over a big old cypress tree, short left of the green, shanked it way right of the green, and it made the most amazing up and down. Most of my shanks led to pars. Like I, I don't know why I did it or how I did it, but I got up and down for par probably seventy-five percent of the time when I shanked it. But 10 at Riviera, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4 at TPC, Scottsdale, par 3, uh, six, uh, 16 at TPC, Sugarloaf, uh, shanked it on number 2 off the tee, a 3-iron at Cy- uh, Spyglass, um, 
all those are pars. I made pars on all of them. And it, it, uh, I shanked one this year on the Corn Ferry Tour in Springfield. I had a 129 pitching wedge into a green front hole location, had like 30 feet of green behind me with a backboard. It was a perfect wedge. I saw it coming. I, it, like, I'm thinking I'm going to stuff this close. And I hit the most unbelievable hosel rocket to the right. I had 74 yards left in <laughs> to the green from the right drop. And I clanked <laughs> that one off the pin and made an eight-footer for par. So, I mean, it's wow. like I remember these shots. I shanked one at TPC Boston uh, on 17. Uh, I shanked one at Spy, another one at Spyglass on a, on a par three. I, there, like over the years, I, that's, I mean, I knew I had one or two. Webb Simpson talks about uh, he's got a few in his bag as well. And, and um, But you, you got to have a sense of humor because the shank is kind of a funny shot to hit, especially for the spectators when they get to see a tour player do it. <laughs> Paul, I want to switch gears just a little bit and, want to get your thoughts on some of the things going on around the PGA tour now. And when, when you look at the wraparound season, right? I mean, the idea I thought was for compressing the schedule was let's get done before college football and pro football get started because no one's going to be watching the tournaments anyway. So let's get this season over and done with. We pushed all the majors together and all that sort of stuff. But then we have the wraparound season that starts a week or two after the tour championship ends. What's your thought about the wraparound season? Is it good for golf and for the young guys trying to rack up some points and getting, you know, sort of getting a head start, if you will, or, or is it too much? Well, you know, I, I think, uh, I think it is really good for the young guys or for the, for the players who missed the playoffs last year, the players coming off the corn Ferry tour, um, the players who maybe even finished outside the top 125 on the money list. Um, because they're getting more opportunities to play early in the season. And we've seen it now the last, what, three or four years since the wraparound season has initiated that those players who get off to a good start, there's a bunch of them that end up in the tour championship at the end of the year. So, um, I, you know, as a golf fan, and I'm a golf fan, um, I, I enjoy the fact that there's golf on every week. Um, I, you know, I don't sit and watch it religiously, but um, – but I'll tune in. I don't care. I'll tune in to the LPGA Tour, the Corn Ferry, the, the PGA Tour Champions, PGA Tour. I, sometimes if I'm up on the weekend, I'll tune into the European Tour. So um, it's just fun for me to watch some golf. And, and But I think that, you know, you, you've got 125 players who earn their full exempt status each year. Um, and you have fields of 156, but you've also got 50 players that came out of the Corn Ferry and uh, the Cord Ferry uh, Tour, what do they call it, uh, finals or whatever. Um, so 125 and 50, if I did my math right, that's 175 players that are quote-unquote exempt. Um, but there's only 156-man fields in some events, 144 in some, 120 in, in some other ones. And, and so there's a lot of players that aren't getting a chance to play every week. So these events um, in the fall – uh, give those players an opportunity. And, and, you know, some of the events that are going opposite to the uh, World Golf Championships, um, like, for instance, the, the new event in Bermuda here coming up in a couple weeks, um, it, it's, it's gone very deep in the field. In fact, I'm 18th alternate, and I have, I have made no money on the PGA Tour in the last, I think, five years. So 
I am as far down the, the barrel as you can possibly get. And I'm almost in that tournament. So it's going pretty deep. <laughs> and some people would go, well, that's, you know, that's kind of a bummer. But, you know, guys like Robert Allenby and, and Rich Beam, um, you know, those guys are in the field. So they're, they're kind of excited that, all right, this is an opportunity. So, you know, the, the, the guys, the, the, the fans, Chris, who, who tune in to just the majors and the World Golf Championships, they couldn't care less about the tournaments in the fall for the most part. Um, but you know, the, there's a lot of fans that are like me that go, I'll tune into golf every week. I don't care. It's just kind of fun to watch, especially you know, we're going to get toward the, uh, we're getting closer to winter and most people up in Canada, they are golf fanatics and it's cold up there now and they're probably not playing golf. So they're going to be tuned in. Uh, I'm, I'm certain, but it's a mixed bag of, of people who are, you know, thinking there's too much golf. I personally, you know, I, I think it's great, and uh, the fall is full of uh, – the fields are full of players who want to play. Nobody's told to play. Nobody's forced to play. And if you want to play and get an opportunity to get a head start on some FedEx Cup points, tee it out, man. I mean, they're going to be – they're in Korea this week. They're in Japan next week and then Bermuda. I mean, it's kind of cool. You rack up freezing flyer miles, <laughs> go see different parts of the world, <laughs> you know, have a good time. <laughs> Paul, looking a little bit further ahead in the winter time, we've got the President's Cup matches coming up, and the international team looks pretty darn good. What's your expectation? Do you think the U.S. team can continue their dominance, or do they need to be very careful with this international team? Well, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, the world golf is chock full of great, talented players, and, um, you know, the international team's full of great players. The, the U.S. team is full of great players. Uh, it all comes down to X's and O's, though, Chris. Right? You, you've got to you got to perform. You got to play well. And um, I think whoever's on that team is, um, you know, they want to win. Nobody wants to lose. Um, I, I don't care. It's not even about the money. It's not about. I mean, it's about nobody likes to lose. Um, and so, it's going to be fun to watch. I'm 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 uh, I'm excited for it. Uh, uh, I, I think it's um, you never know, right? You just never think of watching the Solheim Cup. And watching Suzanne Pedersen, you know, close it out. Here's a, and then she retires. I mean, think and talk about mic drop. Uh, but that was a lot of excitement. So I love the team competitions. I never got to play in in a Ryder Cup or a Presidents Cup. Uh, I was close one year. I actually got fitted for my uniform and jackets and all that stuff. But um, I failed at the very end of the season to uh, to make the team. And and so I never got a chance to play uh, in professional golf for our country. But I played in college on the U.S.-Japan all-star matches. Uh, we had six Americans against six Japanese. And, and there's something about playing for your country and wearing the stars and stripes. And um, it's pretty neat. Uh, I, 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 so those, all the players that are playing, they're, um, it's, it's big business. Golf's big business. But nobody wants to lose, um, probably more so than, than somebody wants to win, you know? Just a couple more, Paul, before I let you go. And, and you're talking about big business, let's talk a little bit about the, the golf equipment. And when you look back to when you first started out on tour in the 90s and into the early part of the 2000s, compared to what it's like for the, for the equipment and the golf balls you play now, how dramatic is the difference? You know what's funny is I just upgraded here um, in the last – well, this year. Actually, I played five Corn Ferry Tour – well, I played – two Corn Ferry Tour events and, and three web.coms um, this year, but it's obviously now the Corn Ferry Tour, but uh, I played five events this season. And when I was in Columbia, um, 
you know, being a guy on the outside the last few years, I mean, I, I, I hung up the sticks and I started a business and I was a business guy. I wasn't a professional golfer. And, and so I, you know, I didn't have any deals and, and I was, I literally was playing with equipment that I, back in the day, I brought out the old Callaway ERC fusion. And I wow. started playing that at home. And I went into to Selinger's here in Dallas, and I, I got on the, on the uh, TrackMan fitting deal, and my ball speed was a mile faster with that thing than it was with all the new, the Ping, the Callaway, the TaylorMade, anything new. I was a mile faster with this old technology from, like, what, 2004 or something. Um, and it cracked me up. And, uh, but it was a – seven degrees shim dip like five and a half degrees a lot so i didn't have the launch and the spin characteristics but my ball speed was a mile an hour faster so the the funny thing is is i am i swing out of my shoes now i'm playing modern technology i've got the, the callaway epic driver in my bag and and my my ball speed the best i can get it is 150 i think i got 157 and a half um that's it. My ball speed in the late 90s, early 2000s, really the late 90s, was faster. So now, obviously, I'm I'm almost 50. I turned 50 in two months, um, so I'm I don't I can't swing it as fast. But the equipment nowadays, compared to the equipment back in, and they say if every year the new driver is 20 yards longer, right? I mean, it's been 10 years. I should be hitting it 200 yards longer. Um, comparatively speaking, but I'm not. So it's it's kind of crazy. Um, and so I can't. I mean, I, I'm my mind is baffled at, at these young guys and how they they generate club head speed and, and the ball speeds are just out, through the roof. Um, but uh, but I got a birthday coming up, Chris, on December second. And so December third, yes, I'll be teeing up in the in the teeing up in the first round of the PGA Tour Champions Finals of Q School. And I will go from being very short and old to being young and average. And I can't <laughs> wait because <laughs> I'll be the youngest guy there and I'll be very average in length. So that's awesome because I, I, I played with a guy named – there's a kid on the, on the Corn Ferry Tour. His name is Brandon Matthews. And a funny story, he, he's from the town that my dad grew up in in Pennsylvania – um, which is really ironic, really weird. But <clears throat> he's a great dude. He's like built like Adonis. He's six four. If you're gonna build a human being, you're, you build him like this guy. And um, and he hits it so far. And he outdrove me by 85 yards. Uh, I played a practice round with him in San Francisco on the Corn Ferry, and the ninth hole at, at TPC Stonebright. I was 85. I had a good drive. Now I hit a little butter cut. It's uphill. And I landed into the hill, and he flew the hill, but he was 85 yards past me. And then a couple of holes later, I didn't do the math on how far he was past me, but I hit a good drive, and I hit four iron into the green, and he hit driver nine iron. So, like, I'm tired of that. That's not fun at all. Um, it's not fun at all. So I know Scott McCarron and, the, and some of those guys hit the ball a long way, but I can't wait to be average. Um, it's going to be awesome. So that that was my last question for you. I mean, I want to, we talk X and O, so we, I got to get a, a football thought from you. But when you turn 50, is that the goal for next year? Are we going to see you out on the Champions Tour? Well, yes, I have to go through, I go through the finals of, of Q School. Um, when I quit playing in 2013, I was uh, fully exempt. I, a a two-year, based on the category they had, was 
I had two years. And then uh, I think a, a year and a half into my, re quote, pause, um, they changed the rules and made it even harder to get out there on the Champions Tour. So I, I, uh, I'm now out, uh, but I get to go right to finals for two years. So I'll be one of the 78 guys vying for one of the five PGA Tour Champions cards they're going to give out. And uh, it's not going to be easy, um, but you know, I've been working my butt off uh, really the last year and a half uh, on my body. And then really since May, um, I decreased. Uh, I stopped doing PGA Tour radio uh, in in uh, in April, um, and decreased some of the broadcasting uh, elements that I was doing with PGA Tour Entertainment. And uh, I sold my my belt company, um, so I had more time to spend. And and I've been I've been you know uh, as my dad would say on the rock pile. Um, and uh, you know I can't wait. You know I it's you know. I'm going to be 50, but I feel like a kid again. And uh, I remember going through Q school back in the day. And, and when I made it in 1993, um, you know, it was a dream come true. And I got to, I got to live that dream for, you know, uh, basically 20 years um, playing a, uh, you know, a game for a living, a little boy's game. Um, and uh, now I have an opportunity to, to potentially, um, go round two in that same dream and, and uh, get to play with some of the guys that I, I played with for many years. And, you know, I, I watched the PGA tour champions on TV and, and these are my, my, the guys I played against my friends and, uh, you know, Scott McCarron's caddy, Rich Mayo was my college roommate and he was my caddy for, uh, for some of my, my best golf out there on the tour. And um, just watching these guys, uh, they all can play so well. And, and I, you know, I hope, I hope to have a chance uh, to, to compete. If even if I don't get my card, I'm I'm taking a year and I'm going to go and do all the Mondays and live the life of a you know a, a traveling uh, professional golfer uh, again and to see if I can maybe parlay something like Doug Barron did, you know, going through Monday qualifying and and winning uh, at the BC or at the back the BC Open the the old PJ Tour's BC Open. I think it's called the Big Sporting Goods, but in uh, in Endicott, New York and um that would be fun so i'm looking forward to it my wife's giving me her blessing you know my son who's 20 now he he you know he wants me to to, to play so badly and um it's uh it's going to be a lot of fun trying chris it's not gonna be easy these guys are good uh, even the guys that that aren't on the on the champions tour that are that are trying they're all good too so um but i'm going to give it a whirl and and um see what happens Speaking of your son, how's uh, how's Josh's game? You know, Josh uh, just started college. Uh, he's not playing college golf, and and so he is between working a little bit uh, and homework and, and doing school. He hasn't played a whole lot of golf, and uh, um, I think he's probably been on on the golf course you know four times since school started in uh, in August. So uh, it's a bummer for me. I, you know, I, I'd love to to see him um, play a little bit more, but. Uh, he still likes the game, but he's got he's got priorities right now that uh, that trump um, getting on the golf course. But uh, hopefully, you know, during breaks and and uh, next summer, uh, Lord willing, if I if I get my card next summer, he'll he'll spend some time caddying for me out there, and and uh, that'll be a uh, that'll be a I don't say a dream come true because I never dreamed of my son caddying for me on the PGA Tour Champions, but um, but it would definitely be a uh, a great time to have him strolling the fairways with me so uh, but he's doing well in school and and uh working his butt off and 
I'm proud of him for that, and my daughter as well. So um, life is good. So I got to get an X and O question in before uh, I let you go. So I know you're an Alabama fan for college football, and you're a, a Cowboys fan in the NFL. So you've got one still doing really well, and I think one that's sort of raising some eyebrows for figuring what the heck is going on. Give me your thoughts on Alabama season and uh, and the Cowboys. Well, um, we'll start with Alabama. Yeah, obviously they're 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 playing well. It's early in the season. Um, you know, they're still they're still loaded, uh, and you know, you figure they're. I mean, they're number one in the country. They're undefeated. Uh, but all that to say, yes, I, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared of LSU, and I'm scared of Auburn, and, and so. I, I, but I'm a sports panicker. I always have been, I, you know, I'm never comfortable uh, on Saturday afternoons or Sunday. And, um, you know, this week, I, you know, you'd like to think it's a, it's an, you know, off week, if you will. I think they got Tennessee coming up. So, uh, but you know, Nick will have them, have them ready to play for against anybody, uh, knowing that it doesn't take much to, to get knocked off like you saw last week. Um, uh, South Carolina, but, um, but I think, uh, LSU is probably as good as they've, they've ever been, um, well, at least for a long time and Auburn's good too. So it's not going to be an easy road if they, if they were to make it to the national championship or to put to the playoffs, uh, uh, it'll be a heck of a heck of a season. And uh, even if they did get there, I mean, the last thing I want to see is Tua against Jalen Hurts. Um, for crying out loud, uh, that, would, <laughs> right. that would be just awful. So, um, but anyway, so college football, that's, that's my take there. And, and, and the Cowboys, are you kidding me? The Dallas Cowboys They they came out looking great against some pretty poor teams, but um, they look lost. You know, their cornerbacks look lost. Uh, you know, Jason Garrett obviously doesn't have a contract beyond this year. Uh, Dak, Dak doesn't either. Uh, people thought he was going to get $30 million a year after the first three games, and <laughs> I think his stock's going down a little bit. So, thankfully, it's only week six, um, but we got a big game against Philly this week, and uh, obviously the winner of the game is going to take over first place in the NFC East and, um, and take some confidence and maybe some momentum going into the middle part of the season. But um, the last three weeks have been hard. You know, hard for my son. He's a huge sports freak he's a Cowboys fan he's a Dallas Stars fan they're one in five um my Dodgers got beat by the stinking Nats um this has been a uh hasn't been a very good uh (laughs) not a rough uh, go from 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 a from a sports standpoint but um but there's time you know the uh the optimist in me says there's time it's better to be to play bad early than to play bad late that's right Paul, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, follow you when you get out to the uh, Champions Tour, whether they're doing it online or it's on social media? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm on uh, all the, the platforms. Uh, I'm at Paul Stankowski on Twitter, and, and uh, I'm on Facebook and, and uh, on Instagram as well. All I think my name is it's just Paul Stankowski. So, um, so that's that. Um, but, uh, yeah. So that's how you can follow me. Um, but yeah, it's going to be fun. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty excited um, to give this a whirl. I mean, it's weird. It's weird turning 50. How old are you? I'm 54. You're 54. So how is it in the 50s? 
<laughs> I got to be honest with you. I, I didn't. It, none of the milestones yet, you know, have, have bothered me. You know, and, and in my mind, I'm still 24. It's not until I start to try to walk down the stairs in the morning or start to actually do something that I, I my uh, my mind realizes my body's 54 and not 24. But you know, outside of the occasional ache and pain, and and I, I tell you. Um, and, and doing the football show, uh, one of the things that uh, the guys have said to me, because most of the guys that we have on are, are the NFL legends, right? they say, you know, at some point you've got to realize that 75% is your new 100%. So that's about where I'm yeah, at. Yeah, th- that's true. Well, I, I get it. I'll tell you what, you're right. Yeah, I feel when I'm sitting down, I feel 25. And as soon as I get up, I'm like, holy moly, like what the heck? I'm my dad all <laughs> over again, you know, and, and uh, it's <laughs> – it's uh, I, I'm stiff and it takes me a while to, to get upright. But um, yeah, it, uh, in fact, I was in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago uh, walking from a restaurant to our car and I tripped over. a, a I don't know what I tripped over my shadow or something. And, and I ended up stumbling, fumbling, face planted. I mean, it was awful. And I'm like, I was sober and I just I couldn't even walk. <laughs> and talk. So, uh, let alone, I couldn't imagine trying to run an out pattern. Um, my legs just don't, they don't want to keep up like they used to. So it's definitely, uh, getting, getting old, you know, I'm, I'm not old. I just gotta, I gotta have, I think it's always good to have friends older than you because then you're never too old. You know? There you go. I'm glad to do that for you, Paul. I'm here for you, my friend. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. <Chris. laughs> Paul, thank you so much for being generous with your time and coming back on this show. I always have so much fun when you join me. I hope I get the uh, opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Well, thank you for having me on. It's always fun to, uh, to be on as well. You're, you're, I, I told you before, and I'll tell you again, you're one of the best interviewers uh, around. That's for sure. You, you do your homework. You know your stuff. And so you, you remind me of things that I, I've forgotten. So, um, so thank you. Keep it up. I appreciate you, Paul. Take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Chris. You too. That's a great Paul Stankowski. I tell you what, how much fun was that? Listening to his uh, his stories and his insights, and he always makes me laugh, and he's just a wonderful human being. He's a great golfer, and I'm certainly in his corner for when uh, the PGA Tour Champions comes around and looking forward to following his success on there. Hopefully, we get to have him back on the show again real soon. All right, uh, before I play my interview and conversation with Gary Player from yesterday morning, I want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Positive Vibes Golf. Check them out online at PositiveVibesGolf.com and give them a follow on Twitter, at PVibesGolf. Their head covers and putter covers are a very unique way to keep your mind focused on positive thoughts. They're a great on-course training aid as well because you go back to the bag, you see these these wonderful positive head covers and putter covers and Kind of brings a smile back to you know to your face, and if you've hit a bad shot, makes you realize you know what, like they say on the covers, enjoy the day, right? That's that's the main thing, right? Enjoy your buddies, enjoy your friends, enjoy the day. It's fantastic stuff. Check it out online, positivevibesgolf.com, or give them a follow on Twitter at pvibesgolf. All right, uh, like I said, I've had the uh, wonderful privilege of getting to spend some time with Gary Player yesterday morning. It was uh, a huge thrill. It's always so much fun. It's always very informative. He's very generous with his time and always makes me feel very good uh, when we're having our conversations. I can't thank him enough for that. But uh, here, let me go ahead and play that interview for you. How are you? 
I'm well, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you, Chris. <laughs> That's good news. I went out to Arizona for four days to the uh, the PXG company. Gee, they well organized those people. Yeah, I was curious about you, you switching brands and, and going uh, now partnering with PXG over the last what, year or so. Yes, well, I was with Callaway for 16 years, you know, and then uh, I think they needed to make way for younger guys and what they offered, you know, uh, we didn't think was right. So I'm very, very happy to be with PXG. They're fantastic. How's the equipment? How do you compare the equipment uh, with PXG versus what you had with Callaway? Now, I must say, I thought that I get the feeling when I play that PXG is superior. Their technology, for example, they had all the guys on the tee fitting you out and on the golf course. They have a service that uh, no other company comes close to. Their promotional days are phenomenal. So you feel like yeah, you're getting I mean, more distance and more control? Well, distance is something that doesn't happen with me at my age. I can hear the ball land. <laughs> no, right. But I, I think I think the thing is that the uh, the irons and particularly the little fairway woods, you know, the uh, they are so fantastic. Uh, the feeling they've got in the design, uh, every one of their clubs is absolutely. I mean, their their technology it gives you confidence to hit the ball further. I tell you, it's interesting that you mentioned their fairway was because I, I saw an interview with you uh, a while back where you talked about if you would have had a nine wood back when you played, yeah. you would have won more golf tournaments. Why is that? Well, I think particularly at Augusta, you know, I came to 13 and 15 and I was usually hitting a, you know, a three iron or a two iron uh, invariably. And you couldn't get it, you know, those days the fairways weren't like now, beautifully uh, manicured. The fairways were not all that good. And they didn't have mowers to cut the fairway short, and they didn't have the technology how to grow grass and the type of grass that they have there now. And I had great difficulty getting it up. Invariably, I'd hit on the green and go over. Whereas now, if you've got these uh, rescue clubs, you can hit the ball so high, Chris, it's uh, you hit it twice as high as we used to hit it, at least twice as high, and you can stop the ball. You know, it's just such a different game now. I mean, no spike box on the green. Every bunker, you can set the same depth. Uh, you've got mowers that can cut the greens really short. Mowers that can cut fairways very short. We used to play off quite long fairways. And in the more, and we played a lot of Bermuda grass where you couldn't stop the ball properly with the, the wetness on the grass. Didn't have the grooves that you have. I mean, it's just a completely different game. And to that point, Mr. Player, one of the things that I look at today's game versus when you were in your prime is the artistry and the creativity and the things that you guys had to do because the ball flies straighter and further today, obviously, than it, than it did back when you were playing. Talk about the loss of the artistry of the game and the loss of the creativity that you guys had to have. Well, I'll give you an example. I, I never had more than a 56 in the sand, 56 degrees. Now you can get, if you want to, you can get a 64. Because remember, the flags are close to the edge of the green. And when you go in the bunkers, you've got to hit this high shot. We never had a club that could do that. We had to manufacture it with our hands. We had to get the club head to the ball 
quicker to add loft. You had to add loft when we were swinging, and we had to have a grip that made more loft. I mean, it was, you know, it is so, so different. And then the ball goes 50 yards further now, and you use one ball for a round. We used to use three and four and five balls in a round because with the old balata, if you hit a wedge, it would, you know, and, and you hit it fairly cleanly, it would scull the ball and you'd chop and change the ball. Now, sometimes I play almost two rounds with a ball. It's just, wow. it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Mr. Player, I want to go back to the, the event you hosted here not long ago, the Gary Player Invitational Tournament there at Glen Arbor Golf Club up in New York, just a little north of the city. It's a beautiful golf course that you designed there. Talk about that event. Well, it really is a beautiful golf course, and they have you know, something that is very important, Chris, and that's a staff. When you drive in there, they're so friendly and helpful. You've got great service for breakfast or for lunch. You've got a beautiful practice area, and the golf course is the kind of golf course. You know, I always feel that if you've got a golf course, you say, I've finished playing, I'd really like to go out and play a game. It's so enjoyable. We don't have many bunkers in front of the green so the ladies can run the ball up. You know, today so many golf courses have bunkers in front of the green, and the lady gets on there, or the old man, and he hits the ball over the bunker. They cannot stop it, Chris. So, of course, it suits all golfers, and besides that, it is beautiful with all their trees. It's just magnificent. The clubhouse high up on the hill. And they have one of the best superintendents I've ever seen. And Mr. Player, when you look at that golf course online, again, what it's a, it is a beautiful layout carved right into an area of wetlands. You've got wildlife that's, that kind of is prevalent in that area. Talk about the course itself and fit, how you were able to fit that area into a place where you didn't have to disrupt the ecosystem. Well, first of all, you know, we always had a policy that if you took out a tree, you planted two back. Because my brother was one of the world's leading conservationists, and he all said, we're going to run into trouble with water, Chris, in the world, big time, which we are right now. You know, so many of the rivers are polluted, and to get good quality water and the wastage of water. And uh, one of the things we're going to have to do, Chris, we're going to have to use effluent water on golf courses from now on because municipalities are going to run out of water with uh, growth, uh, increase in population. So we're going to have to design golf courses that don't just eat up water. And then also, Chris, we've got to do good drainage. You know, if you've got a good drainage system, the water goes through very nicely and uh, improves the underground water. So that's very important. And wetlands are something that we take very good care of because it brings the birds in. And for me, while you're playing golf and people have been under pressure at an office all week, they now go out and play golf. They want to see the birds. You know, some of us love birds. I do. I'm crazy about birds. And uh, I want to see the wildlife. And I want to see good, beautiful trees, fighting pollution. You know, all these things to me are very, very important. When I look at Glen Arbors, it's about 7,000 yards long. With the way that, you know, we talked a moment ago about the equipment and the ball and all that sort of thing, for a 7,000-yard course with guys like Cameron Champ and Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, et cetera, et cetera, that are blasting the ball 350-plus yards off the tee, how do you make that course so that it's not just a driver sand wedge for the uh, accomplished players? Well, first of all, if you put rough on a golf course, 
that has a tremendous bearing because these guys are not what you call the most accurate drivers in the world. Uh, when you start hitting the ball prodigious distances, you usually lose a bit of accuracy. And the other thing is all you've got to do is firm up the greens. So you don't have to have these long golf courses, as Marion has proved. Look at the score at Marion. That's a short golf course. They put rough and firmed up the greens, and that takes care of everything. They're wasting so much money in the world on changing their golf courses to and making them impossible for the members, and the members hate it. They come in and they put bunkers in front of the greens. They make the greens undulating. They make the golf course longer, and the, uh, many members, a large percentage of members, resign. That The golf ball, in my opinion, is the reason why the, the rounds of golf has deteriorated, besides the cost and the time that golf takes. We'll come into that in a minute. But the golf, the golf ball, uh, people have become, they must have spent at least, I would say, $100 million or more, $200 million on golf course changing around the world uh, in the last 10 years. I don't know, whatever the number is, but changing, unnecessarily changing all these golf courses. I mean, uh, Turnbury, yes, that that they did change, which made sense because they put the tees up on the on the mounds where you could see the Irish Sea, and he made a big improvement on that because that is a championship golf course. But most golf courses are never going to have a tournament on. And then how many more tournaments can they have, Chris? <laughs> so people, <laughs> people are dreaming. There are only so many weeks in a year. There are only so many tournaments. And, you know, we never had a, a metal head. A metal head you hit on the toe, the heel, or the middle, and it goes pretty straight. When you play with those old wooden clubs, you know, with a, a binding, a, a, a cord that you bound around the bottom of the club and you put it in with epoxy, if you hit it in the toe or the heel, you just had no result whatsoever. And now you stand there and you're drawing the ball too much. You bring out a little screw and you screw it and you start hitting it dead straight. Or you're fading and you put that screw in and you adjust it and you start drawing the ball. I mean, it's just, it's a joke, the difference. in you, you cannot compare golfers today of the past. You take putting. The greens today are like a snooker table. We putted on crap. And let me tell you something. When you think of Tiger Woods, uh, Bobby Locke from South Africa, who was the best putter ever, and you take Billy Casper and Jack Nicklaus and Bob Charles from New Zealand, there were a host of putters that were just as good as today. Maybe, maybe better because they putted like Tarzan on lousy greens. Let's take that a step further because I agree with you. Today, you know, today's society, it's all about what's happening right now, right? Too many people fail to look back at history particularly if we're talking about who some of the greatest players are of all time. Talk about the Ben Hogan's and the Sam Sneeds and the Byron Nelsons and you and Mr. Nicholas and how accomplished you guys were in your prime for those who don't remember. You've only got to look at the scores that we did on those golf courses and you'll see the scores haven't improved that much. So, but the two best golfers I've ever seen were Sam Snead and Ben Hogan. Remember, Ben Hogan won nine majors and he went to war for five years. Then he came back and had an automobile accident. So he never played in basically uh, 30 majors in his prime. Think about that. And Sam Snead also went to war. So, I mean, that's a very, very big factor, isn't it? Yes, absolutely it is. But, you know, you just have to, and maybe... Maybe the best golf swing I've seen is Bobby Jones, and that's over 100 years ago. 
But do you know, if Bobby Jones went to lessons today, there's certain pros that would change his swing. That's probably right. And I don't want to lose sight of something that you mentioned a moment ago about time. You talk about how it's challenging for how much time the game takes to play. And I know that we're trying to do a lot of different things now by carving that up. But talk about some of the things that you think we should be doing so that uh, more people get out and play. Well, first of all, I think everybody should be allowed to use a range finder because I see people, they, they walk across the fairway to see a sprinkler, how far it is, then they walk back. Quite honestly, they don't really know how far they hit the ball anyway. And then <laughs> just, just have a range finder for everybody. You don't need all these books. And then they look at a book to read a green, Chris. Can you imagine this? The greatest putters right. of the world in our time. And please believe me, the, 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 the putters in our time, I think, were as good or better than the guys of today. Let's say they were as good. Let's not even say they were better. They didn't need a book to read a green. I play golf courses I've never seen in my life. I don't miss reading greens. I mean, if you cannot read a green, you've got a serious problem as a pro, man. <laughs> right. They bring out a book right. to read a green. Are you crazy? I mean, you go to Scotland and the member tees off and he plays it in pouring rain and wind and he plays it in three hours. I mean, this is... And the senior tour is very good. The champions tour, they, they're very strict on slow play. We've got, and you must remember that the average amateurs watching, the young boys are watching the tour and they see them bring out books and taking all this time. I mean, uh, Kepta had a terrible time playing in the British Open this year with one of the players that was slow. He got so irritated. The man was taking, you know, seven and eight practice swings. I mean, honestly, the, the, the tour, and the USGA and the RNA have just got to get tough. And they got to, you know, the, the people that play off first, they've all got to finish right on time. They, you, you cannot, you should never have a round of golf. Never goes over four hours and, and 30 minutes. And Mr. Player, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is longevity. And when I look back at your playing career, you had success in majors over 20 years. Mr. Nicholas, 25 right. years. Mr. Palmer, only over six years. Talk about how we should be looking at how great longevity it should factor into somebody's uh, playing career if we're talking about the greatest of all time. Yes, if you're going to be judging players, don't tell me how far they hit the ball or how charismatic they were or how great a putter they were. Just tell me what they won. It's on paper. You can see on paper who uh, are the the best players that ever lived. It's all written down on paper. It doesn't tell a lie. And that's the way to judge it. And also longevity. I mean, you know, if you buy a car and it only lasts you five years, that's not much of a car. You buy yourself a BMW, a proper BMW, that lasts a long, long time. So the thing is that you've got to, surely, a person who has longevity has got to go very high up the list because it showed that his game lasted for a long time. Now, Let's look at players that, uh, that we saw play. We saw David Duvall, number one in the world, couldn't play anymore. We saw Ian Baker Finch, right up in the tops in the world, suddenly couldn't play. We saw Trevor Immerman, won the Masters. We found he couldn't play anymore. We found Mike Weir, who won the Masters, couldn't play anymore. You can go down the list of a lot of players. There are a whole host of them that played well and won big tournaments, and suddenly you never heard of them. Surely longevity means, a. I think longevity means an awful lot when judging players. 
You know, Chris, I'm 84 now, and I still average 72. I've beaten wow. my age 3,000 times in a row. Wow, that's amazing. On a bad day, I shoot 74, and I'm 84. Wow. That's only awesome. Be- only because of equipment, mind you, but also the fact that uh, I still work out in the gym hard, and that's the big thing. When I see people of my age, Chris, same age, and what they look like, as compared to my fitness, it's a really living example of how important exercise is. And that's the one thing that gives me great joy, Chris. As you know, we all want to leave this world having contributed to society. I think that's terribly important. I was very poor, and I always said, if I do well enough, I'm going to try and contribute to society. That's how my parents brought me up. And you know, when I think when I started in 1953, there were nobody, nobody was using the gym. Nobody was using the weights. The only exercise they did was taking an olive from a martini glass into another. <laughs> there was no, nobody using weights, Chris. And then Frank Stranahan yeah. and I were the only two. And they said, if I show, had to tell you, being ridiculed is not the word. They all said we're crazy. One of the famous golf architects of all time said, Gary Player will never win a tournament after the age of 35. Well, I won a tournament at 63. So, I mean, there you are. They're all working out. And Chris, I want to tell you something. I, I don't know if you'll be here in 30 years' time. I won't be. But they're going to be. Kepka will be a short hitter in 30 years' time. These guys yeah. at universities and yeah. colleges are, and around the world are lifting weights. Have you seen these guys in the world's long driving competition? They come out, they look like Mr. Universe. And you think, well, they won't be able to swing the club. And they swing it back beyond parallel. You can't get muscle down. Now, if, you, if you're a tight person, that's unlucky for you. But the average person exercises, I'm going to make him that he can't go off. I mean, these guys, these, these guys are long driving any of the ball. They can drive the first hole at Augusta now. Think about that. They can, the first hole at Augusta is 454. Now, right. these guys are the ball 458. We're going to see things in 30 years' time. These guys on the tour today will be pea shooters. <laughs> right. I don't know what's going to happen unless we unless we cut that ball back only for pros, not for amateurs. Leave everything to the amateurs. Let the amateur come back to the long putter. You know how many long uh, amateurs when they took the long putter away, they had the yips so badly, and now they gave up golf. Let the amateurs use the long putter, not the pros. And the pros mustn't and they, they mustn't be using the long putter anchoring it. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. We've got to do something about this ball. I mean, as it is, one of the players, I think it was, I think it was Baba Watson had a drive and a, and a gap wedge to 13 at Augusta. Remember? Right. I mean, they, I mean, they're going to hit drive and wedge to the second hole at Augusta. They're going to hit a drive and a wedge at 15. They're going to hit a drive and a wedge at 13. I mean, where are we going? They, if they play at St. Andrews, the home of golf, they'll drive seven or eight greens. Right. We've got to slow the ball down for professional golf, not for amateur golf. They're two different games. And don't take the long putter away. Don't do anything that's going to reduce rounds of golf. Rounds of golf are down now. We've got to do more with young people. We've got to come up with brilliant ideas to get more people to play golf. And people have got to realize what a great exercise golf is, contrary to what people think. 
It's a great exercise. I remember right. Michael Jordan saying, if he walked 36 holes, he felt pooped. And he was, he was the greatest athlete in the world. Mr. Player, just a couple of more before I let you go. And um, I, I've, ta- I've had the privilege of, of talking to you a couple of times in the past. And, and uh, I said this to you, and I was talking to your son, Mark, and I said this to Mark. Um, you, your voice is the voice of conscience in my head. I used to be a, a big ice cream eater, hot fudge sundaes all the time. And now when I go try to get some ice cream, I hear your voice in my head saying, come on, man, that's poison. All that sugar. So well, I make better choices because I hear you in my head. Chris, that's such good news. Uh, it's so nice to hear that. I haven't had an ice cream or a piece of bacon in 22 years. Wow. And you know, Chris, it's so hard. It's so hard to stay healthy and to stay in condition. The most important thing in your life is your health. And people do not worry about it. You know, obesity is killing more people than the wars of the world. More people are dying of overeating than undereating. And we've got to teach the youth. The youth of a nation are the trustees of posterity. We've got to teach the youth at schools. How to eat properly, no white bread, not a lot of milk, you know, and this is only my opinion, you follow? Yes, my sir. opinion. No, not to say that I'm a doctor, but this is my opinion. I don't drink milk, I don't eat bacon, I don't eat ice cream. I try when I see white bread, I look at poison in my mind. And you've got the big thing is though, with all these fancy diets, you only need, the most you need is two meals a day. You do not need three meals a day. We've got to cut out one meal. I mean, if you go to India and places like that, the people that live a long time and also in Japan, they eat a, they eat a quarter of what we eat in a day. The less you eat, the longer you live. I'm in the racehorse business. If you put 10 pounds on one horse with both horses with equal ability, the other horse is going to beat it most of the time. You've got to keep your weight down. You've got to do that. The biggest problem I think facing America and the free world today is obesity. Mr. Player, I had the privilege of talking with Ben Wright last night, and Mr. Wright's going to be on the show with me tomorrow night. And uh, First of all, he wanted me to pass along to you and his best wishes. He said he's known you since you were practically a boy. What what, what are some of your uh, memories of Ben Wright? No, I remember Ben when I first first went over to England. He was always such a pleasure to interview, and he was always he was a, he knew a lot about golf, but he knew the subject. And I've always loved Ben. He's been a dear friend all over the years, and please give him my best love. I will. One more before I let you go, and I know your foundation is doing great work. You've raised more than $64 million for underprivileged children in, uh, you know, in communities around the world. Talk about all the great things the Player Foundation is doing. Well, first of all, you can, you know, you can go to China and see the, see the aid center that we built. Isn't it nice to be able to go there and see it? You can go to South Africa and you can see the schools that we built. And then you can go to you can go to England and with this company uh, you know that I work for Berenberg Bank in Germany. We were walking in the street in London at night and we saw these people sleeping under the bridges. And I said we've got to do something for them. And you know we built what they call the Depaul D E P A U L the Depaul home and the bank 
provided all the most modern technology, and a lot of these people are now doctors and lawyers as such because we gave them an opportunity. So you can see what we've done around the world. You can actually go there and see the things that we've done. They're there forever. Well, Mr. Player, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning and being generous with me. I, I really appreciate you. It's been a, a huge thrill, the, uh, the times I've had an opportunity to talk with you. I thank you for continuing uh, the relationship, and uh, I hope uh, I get the privilege of uh, catching up with you again sometime real soon. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it, my friend. God bless. Same to you, Mr. Player. Bye-bye. Well, there you have it, folks. That was my conversation yesterday morning with Gary Player. You want to talk about a, a wonderful individual, a guy with uh, obviously one of the best of all time and the great things that he's doing now through uh, his foundation. It's, uh, it's always very deep and meaningful for me, and, and I mean it sincerely. He, his uh, voice is my conscience. Anytime I want to eat something that I probably shouldn't, I can hear him in my head telling me that that's poison. Stay away from that. So uh, anyway, hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with him again real soon. All right, folks, time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks go out again to Ben Wright, Paul Stankowski, and Gary Player for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetee.net. Uh, on there, you'll be able to check out our guest schedule, see who we've got coming up. Please also give us a follow. Go to launchpaddm.com. Subscribe there. We're also on so many other great podcasting sites. Can't thank our friends over at Podbean enough. Uh, please, uh, they'll be uh, spot, uh, featuring us right there on their mobile app here in the next week or so. So very excited about that. We can't thank them for their support enough. We're also on Spotify, iHeartRadio, AudioBoomPlayer.fm. If you've got a favorite podcasting site, you'll be able to find us on it. I promise you. Folks, thank you again for listening to the show tonight and continuing to, uh, to you know, make us a part of your golfing content. I can't thank you enough for that. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.